I am not going to talk this weekend on the, what I believe is a very, very poor decision of the Supreme Court because I'm not yet finished reading Justice Kennedy's majority opinion. I can, what I have read, there are some serious flaws in his logic. Uh, and I have not read any of the dissenting opinions by Justice Roberts, Scalia, Thomas, and Alito yet. But I'll probably say something next weekend or put it into the bulletin. So instead, this weekend, I want to stay focused on our scripture texts. I will say, however, I was not surprised by the decision. I think it's a sign of the basic degradation of the culture at large. We heard in the Book of Wisdom, God did not make death, nor does he rejoice in the destruction of the living, for he fashioned all things that they might have been. For God formed man to be imperishable. The image of his own nature he made him. The Book of Wisdom is not found in the Hebrew Bible. It was written originally in Greek around the year 50 BC, and most likely it was written in Alexandria, Egypt, which had the largest colony of Jews living outside of Israel. It was written at a time marked by highly energetic Greek culture with a literal explosion of new religions, and in particular, new philosophical ways of thinking. What is the meaning of life? What is the nature of man? How can one lead a good life to the best that one possibly can? And this was appealing to a number of Jewish people who were willing to abandon the wisdom of the scriptures. You know, we, so are, we are so easily seduced into thinking the grass is always greener on the other side. Well, the sacred author of the Book of Wisdom, thoroughly grounded in the scriptures, offers a refreshing look at the wisdom that is already in the possession of the chosen people, a wisdom that surpasses that of philosophical speculation, that man is created for immortality, that death was not the work of God, but it came through man's choice to turn inwardly into himself as the source of wisdom instead of God, and consequently made choices contrary and destructive of his great dignity. But here's the question. How does that theology comfort those who are suffering? Did the woman in the gospel, for example, who suffered with hemorrhages for 12 years, derive any peace or comfort from that line of the theological thinking? I don't think so. Did the father of that 12-year-old girl who was at the point of death find any comfort or consolation in that way of thinking? I doubt it. But tell me, when you or a loved one is sick, suffering, struggling with some tremendous burden, are you or your loved one comforted by knowing that God is not the author of those evils, but that man is because of sin? Is that a comfort to you? Are you alive out there? Is that a comfort to you? Not to me. Now, I, I don't dispute the theology. It's spot on. 
But it's not the first thing that I think about when I sit with someone who's struggling, with someone who's suffering, or when I have to deal with my own suffering. The first thing I think about is, Lord, where are you? And today the gospel tells us. Now, let's look at that woman who suffered from hemorrhages for 12 years. The book of Leviticus, chapter 17, verse 11, tells us that blood is the life of the flesh. This woman's life was literally draining away from her. And added to her physical suffering was spiritual suffering. She was considered ritually unclean. And therefore, she would have been forbidden to enter into the temple. The only place on earth the divine presence of God dwelt. Most likely, she would not have been allowed in her own village synagogue. Anything or anyone she touched became ritually unclean. That she was by herself suggests that if she had a family and friends, they kept her at arm's length for fear of contracting ritual uncleanness. Suffering is tough business. And it's a lot tougher when we have to go through it alone. Now look at Jairus, an official of the synagogue, What parent would not be in a state of panic as his or her child was dying and there wasn't anything you could do about it? Jairus goes to his only hope, Jesus. He falls at Jesus' feet, pleaded with Jesus, come, lay your hands on my child. You know, very often it takes suffering in the form of losing what is most important to us to bring us to our knees. Jesus went and Jairus escorted him to his home. The woman, meanwhile, suffering from hemorrhaging, made a bold move. We are told that she had heard about Jesus and that was enough for her to trust you know, a lot of people in that time heard about Jesus, but didn't pay any attention to it. She trusted. A lot of people today hear about Jesus. Some believe, and some don't. But they heard. And now it's between them and God, which is why you and I have a task to evangelize. To bring Jesus to people so they do hear the good news. But this woman placed her trust in Jesus, a huge leap for someone who spent her fortune placing herself in the hands of doctors for so many years only to see her disease worsen. The mystery of faith was there and it was growing convinced that if she only touched the Lord's clothing, she would get well, she summoned the courage to sneak up behind Jesus, using the crowds as a shield for anonymity. She had to violate the law to touch the giver of the law. 
but she took the risk and she was healed. Now, it could have ended there, but it didn't because the divine compassion is scandalously generous. The healing was not quite complete. Jesus turned to find out who touched him. And the woman approached him in what? Fear and trembling. By the way, fear and trembling is the proper response of a human being in the presence of the divine majesty. Fear and trembling. And she told him what? The whole truth. Now, first of all, why did Jesus bother? Because he desired from her what he desires from you, what he desires from me, what he desires from every single person, a relationship with him, which means coming to him to respond to the mystery of faith, to talk to him, to tell him the whole truth. And what did he call her? Daughter. The crowd and his disciples would have been stunned by such a form of address to an adult woman. And then the divine mercy added, your faith has saved you. Her response to the mystery of faith, to reach out to Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, despite all social and religious conventions, saved her. And it's what will save you and save me if we have the same courage. But back to Jairus now. He's like a one-armed paper hanger, trying to keep everything from unraveling and falling down. His daughter is dying. He publicly humbled himself before Jesus in the presence of the crowd, and that could have backfired on him. He was in the company of a man made unclean by an unclean woman, and Jairus knows that the minute Jesus enters the house, anything and anyone he touches will now be unclean. That might cost him his position in the synagogue. And then the worst news comes. Your daughter has died. Jairus was in a very dark place. And through that darkness, there's only one voice that matters. Jesus's. Do not be afraid. Just have faith. Yes, says Jesus. I know everything looks bleak right now. Yes, I know that it seems that things appear utterly hopeless. Yes, I know that you just had your heart ripped out of your chest. Yes, I know death seems to reign supreme. But I'm telling you, do not be afraid. Just have faith. What the Lord said to Jairus, he's saying to you and to me, when we have those moments. His voice, of course, is one of many competing voices when all the noises of the chaos swirling around us are competing for our attention. I know how hard it is to hear him at such times, but it is the most important voice that we can listen to. All the other voices, 
will just lead us into greater darkness. He who is the light of the world will lead us through darkness into hope. Jesus and Jairus arrived at the house and the rituals of death are now in full swing. In those days, you had professional mourners who would be wailing and lamenting and playing on flutes, and the relatives would be cutting their hair and ripping their clothing. Reality tells them that death is the end, this child is lost forever. But Jesus, God in the flesh, knows the truth. Death is not the end. He says the child is what? asleep. And the people ridiculed him. The sense of the Greek text is they, they mockingly laughed at him. Ignoring the pressure to give in to the darkness, Jesus instead does what? He kicks them out. You know, I'm so tired of this namby-pamby Christianity. You know, Jesus, meek and mild, love me like a little child. Oh, it's enough to make you want to vomit. This is a Jesus who has testosterone. And he's not afraid to use it. He kicks them out. And with only Jairus, Jairus' wife, Peter, James, and John present, the Lord brought the girl back into this world, not with drama, but with tenderness. I cannot help but think that Jairus, a devout Jew and a leader of the synagogue, would have thought of the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 25, verse 8. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces. Only God can rescue one from death, and Jairus, his wife, the disciples, the child, were brought face to face with the mystery. Jesus is God. And through the gospel, the living voice of Jesus in his church, we too encounter this mystery. But shall we listen to his voice or all the noise that whirls around us? Will we accept the wisdom of God or will we prefer the wisdom of man?